Welcome back to Swift Unwrapped. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. We have a sponsor this week. This episode is sponsored by Perfect. Uh, Perfect is a server-side Swift set of technologies, and they've recently released the Perfect Assistant that can help experienced developers, whether they're senior or newer ones alike, to uh, have a set of convenience tools to work with Swift on the server. So the Perfect Assistant is a Mac app that will drastically simplify the deployment process and allow iterative developments, not monolithic deployments. Uh, It's faster and easier working in Perfect than working in the terminal. You can point and click, drag and drop, integrates with Docker, with AWS. It even enables pre-flight testing, which would allow you to catch errors before you deploy. Uh, so you can check it out at perfect.org slash en slash assistant. Again, that's perfect.org slash en slash assistant. Our thanks to Perfect for sponsoring this episode. And today uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the new Swift 3.1 release and uh, some improvements to the the Swift package manager. Um, So just a few days ago now, um, Swift 3.1 was officially released with Xcode 8.3, and there's an official blog post on Swift.org announcing the release. So this has been in the works for a while. Um, This is the the first uh, big update that we've that we've seen for for the past few months, and this is what's been uh, in progress since you know late last year. So yeah, there are about eight Swift evolution proposals or so that were included, along with tons of other fixes and improvements. The Linux implementation um, has seen a lot of uh, progress. Um, more. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> and uh, a lot more of foundation has been implemented on the Linux side. But I think one of the, the biggest features of this release um, and one of the areas that saw some of the, the most changes was the Swift Package Manager, which had a number of proposals that were implemented uh, and included for Swift 3.1. Yeah, I feel like a ton of work there happened uh, right under the wire where you had Ankit and uh, Daniel Dunbar um, really working uh, around the clock. It, it almost looks like right up until the very end of the release cycle. Um, so it's clear that they wanted a number of features to be, to be, to be available in the last um like official Xcode release that includes Swift 3 support in order to prepare for Swift 4. Yeah, definitely. They've been working uh, super hard to get these things through. And, um, you know, the package manager in general is still like pretty young um, and there's still um, a lot of work to do compared to a tool like uh, CocoaPods, for example. But um, it's definitely uh, getting closer with each release. Yeah, and... You know, I I can't help but feel that in all of the ways that Apple keeps Swift very open, including its development, they still have a few opportunities to like delight and surprise Swift developers. One of the things that's that's an option uh, for them to do is to say add um, cross compilation support into the low level 
tool that backs with package manager LL build and potentially WWDC, they could say, Oh, and now we support iOS. Um, I've heard no rumblings of this. So, you know, this is entirely just something that they could do. I have no clue if they will do it. Um, but it's, it's something that, uh, is feasible anyway. Um, but for now, you know, with everything that's shipped with Swift 3.1, there's a ton that's available today, uh, that just makes working with the Swift Package Manager a lot more enjoyable, uh, easier to develop packages with, easier to um, use the Swift Package Manager in reliable ways, where if you're working on a large team with lots of projects, uh, odds are they've really improved um, the odds of your project compiling on your machine also compiling on another, which has actually been uh, a problem. I think probably that Apple internally probably faced as well with a few of their teams being on the cutting edge of uh, of the Swift Package Manager. Yeah, I'm sure the teams at IBM as well that are making use of this for all the server APIs work. So that's right. So I know we we really sped through um, you know the the Swift 3.1 part of this release here. Um, and before we get into the Swift Package Manager, because there's a lot to cover there, uh, we can maybe just go through a few of the major um, language changes in the language. Um, and this isn't strictly news um, because you know, these have been a long time coming. For example, one of the changes to the language are new sequence protocol members for drop while and prefix while. And um, I think the very first version of this of this um, proposal probably dates back to like uh, close to a year ago, where Kevin Ballard was proposing these uh, these changes, and I just think that it, it didn't make it in time for the Swift three cutoff, and so it was revisited afterwards. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely good to see that, that that landed. I don't know, Jesse, have you toyed around with uh, with those new protocol members at all? Uh, not yet. I think the original protocol or the, the original proposal uh, suggested three new members, but only prefix while and drop while ended up in the final draft. Um, I can't remember the discussions there on the... Uh, the mailing list, but yeah, it has been a while. I'm sure Kevin Ballard and and others are happy to see this like finally in the release because it, as you mentioned, it got deferred from Swift three. Absolutely, and this is, I think, this is the kind of thing that um isn't necessarily very difficult for you to implement yourself um on top of existing primitive uh, sequence functions or or sequence um, capabilities, but it's probably useful enough that um that it warrants an entry in the standard library. And there's probably some edge cases as well that you uh, might not have considered if you were writing your own version of these. Um, so it's it's good to see that that, that this landed, um, you know, and really incremental change if, if you ask me, but still a good addition to the lamp library. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there have been a few other proposals um, to add things to the standard library. And there's always like, uh, like one thing to point out is there's always this very high bar to add something to the standard library. The core team doesn't want it to become bloated with a bunch of extra different APIs that few people will use. Um, so to get something added to the standard library, I think, is a pretty big deal. That means, um, you know, it's this very valuable and robust API that they anticipate will be used widely. Um, so... Uh, congrats to uh, Kevin Ballard for getting that through. Absolutely. There's a few other things um, 
you know, there is a deprecation of some of the unsafe mutable pointer APIs, and that's really just um, to uh, to make the unsafe stuff a little bit safer. Um, uh, so specifically noted here is to improve the memory safety and faster initialization of memory from sequences. Um, and the, the unsafe mutable buffer pointer is a much closer abstraction to the kinds of things that you'd want to do uh, with a collection or a sequence. Um, so that's a, that's a nice improvement, but but fairly minor as well. The number of people who are using this, um, they're usually the kind of developers who understand why you'd want to use an unsafe pointer, or unsafe mutable pointer, or buffer pointer. And so, um, you know, hopefully that that doesn't affect too many people, and the people who are affected were um, you know, know exactly how to handle this. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, overall, yeah, there should be minimal uh, breakage from the Swift 3.1 release. I think so. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully everyone is having a smooth transition to that. I hope so. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the Linux side, uh, there's just been tons of work on, on the Swift Core Libs Foundation side of things. Uh, and even in the, I don't even know if the right term for this is Swift Overlay, but there are parts of the Swift project that act as a bridge between Darwin Foundation and the Swift language. And a lot of those are more, they're thicker than you know, just an overlay that basically translates APIs and names and, and types. They they tend to do um, a bit more in the wrapping side of things and therefore sometimes incur their own performance overheads. Uh, so, for example, data was uh, massively overhauled in its internals, not not in its API, but it's in internal representations. Um Formerly NS data. Formerly NS data, yeah. Uh, and then Jesse mentioned earlier the progress type uh, was implemented, so it was NS decimal, NS length formatter, um, etc. So there was uh, there were some nice improvements there, and and I hope that um, this is actually being used by enough people to matter. Mm-hmm. I think the largest client of this is IBM and the work that they're doing on. Uh, or in the other like server frameworks out there. Yeah, by far and away, the the biggest um, category of Swift users on Linux are server uh, developers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got Vapor and Perfect and uh, IBM's Katura and things like that. So, uh, I mean, that's clearly reflected in in the server working group as well, mm-hmm. uh, just because you have you have representatives from all those teams, right? Right. Right. Um, and then the last thing that I'd say uh, really on Swift 3.1 in general is that um, what was a bit surprising was to see that it landed first uh, from an from an Apple product on the iPad and Swift for iPad. Um, what's the official name of that app? Swift Playgrounds for iPad? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so that it was available there before it was available in an official Xcode release, which is uh, really strange um, to see that iOS basically got this first. Weird times, for sure. Very strange. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So, you know, interesting to see that they're continuing to push for Swift Playgrounds for iPad. And it's not just uh, this fad or um, temporary fascination uh, to to try and experiment. Like they've really continued to develop for it and, and even to ship things first on there. Right. It makes me feel like the iPad is becoming more of a first-class citizen with regard to development. Um, and yeah, I, there have been 
you know, discussions of what Xcode for iPad would look like. Um, I feel like we're still pretty far from that. But we're very far. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about for sure. Yeah. And when you think of like you, you take a step back and think of it pragmatically, right? Say the end goal is to have, you know, self-hosted iPad compilation or self-hosted iOS compilation on iOS. Right. And you think of, okay, well, what are some of the um, concrete, discrete chunks that you could break that into to have like compelling products at every step of the way while still working towards that larger goal? And Mm -hmm. an educational platform to start off with is a great start. Right. For sure. Because it's basically like a toy compiler with a good purpose. Right. Right. Where um, it uh, by by toy, I mean that you don't necessarily have to worry about scale at first. Right. Mm -hmm. You can focus on very small, easy to compile, uh, like non edge casey parts of Swift. Right. Mm -hmm. None of the Objective C interop or or none of it that's exposed anyway. Right. Right. No. like multi-file projects. I don't know if you can have multiple files. I guess playgrounds can span multiple files, but they're still compiled as whole modules. Right, right. So it keeps things much, much simpler. And so that's a great first step. Mm -hmm. And obviously like the whole content push that they've done to have like educational content that makes the app more compelling despite um, the more constrained uh, development-oriented things that you can do with the app. So great first step. Right, right. Right. And then a next step along the line might be, oh, well, maybe you can package some of these playgrounds into like self-contained executables, just like you can, you know, add a, a web page to your home screen to springboard on iOS by, mm-hmm. by, you know, tapping that uh, Safari share action sheet. Right. You know, right. so that's the next logical step. And then, well, maybe you can actually share those self-contained packages and playgrounds to other apps. Right. 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 Whether you share it via iCloud, I don't know. You might even be able to do that today, but you know, you can clearly see a progression here of how you can eventually with baby steps get to a, not so much a fully fledged Xcode, but a serious, uh, development environment on the iPad without biting off more than you can chew and without, um, pissing off people because you're going too slowly, right? You're still providing value every step of the way. Right, right. Yeah, I know that's an interesting idea of being able to um, kind of pin these scripts to the home screen like a Safari bookmark. Um, is that what you're suggesting kind of? No, I'm, I'm just – I'm trying to think of a reasonable way where Apple isn't uh, being distracted by Swift for iPad sure. rather than working on uh, Xcode for iPad, right. right? Those can be the same thing. Right, right. And um, it would probably be detrimental to everyone if they tried to do it all in one shot because it would mean that they would rush certain things. It would cut too, too many corners and right. people might have a terrible first experience with that. Um, and, you know, it might, might be – well, I'm sure it would be extremely time-consuming for them to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's a sane way to have like maybe a three- to five-year plan to basically get to some – um, serious developer environment on the iPad uh, that that benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe the first clue is that they finally stopped making uh, 16 gig uh, iOS devices. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> finally. That, well, there, there's your uh, there's your hint right there, and also that you were never able to want to run Swift Playgrounds for iPad on those devices for, with 16 gigs. Oh, really? 
Well, no, because the only devices with 16 gigs were iPhones. And Swift for iPad is decidedly not for iPhones. Right. Well, maybe we'll get playgrounds for iPhone. Maybe we will. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, to, to be honest, I don't think I want to be typing with thumbs <laughs> to compile my Swift code, but, right. um, you know, be my guest. Yeah. So I think that that's really the high level um, kind of non-Swift PM stuff for, for Swift 3.1, right? Did you have anything else? Yeah, no. Um, I think that's pretty much it. Um, a quick note kind of looking forward. I mean, we're a few months away from WWDC. We'll see maybe a more formal like Swift 4 announcement there. But hopefully there's, um, yeah, some surprises. I mean, they've certainly been able to um, su- surprise us before, even though Swift is open source. So Yeah, and it's a tricky balance uh, to to meet, right? Because if you surprise and delight too much, then people are like, well, what's the point of this open process? Right. And if you don't do it enough, then people are, are perhaps bored. Uh, but, you know, people are always going to be disappointed no matter what. Uh, so I think that the last big surprise in along those lines was was to see Swift Playgrounds for iPad, yeah. which yeah, is yeah. kind of tangential um, to the Swift open source side of things, right? In the same sense that Xcode is. It's kind of funny to think of Playgrounds and Xcode as being tangential to Swift open source, but, right. you know, bear with me with that definition for, for now. Uh, so one of the things that they could do is to have another closed source tool that benefits from Swift, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and we're, we're taking a bit of an aside here. This isn't in our, in our show notes, but, you know, they could, they could have something else, either an extension to Swift Playgrounds for iPad or another closed source tool that is very powerful yet so still very compelling. So maybe that's, I don't know, better um, refactoring support in Xcode or something like that. Oh man, I can't wait for that. All right. So that's one of the categories of things that they could do to, to surprise and delight is to do something closed source that's tangential to Swift, but not required to, to have it compile. Another thing they could do is to have this thing that has been closed source for a while and then open source it. So one of the things that come to mind are uh, is the Swift Migrator, mm-hmm. right? Which as best I can tell, the Swift Migrator itself is still very closed source, mm-hmm. but it obviously happens to use a lot of the open source components of Swift. Right, right. Like all of the diagnostics and like fixits are basically just like kind of funneled through there, right? That's right. Um, but... The fact that it's closed source and only available via Xcode means that uh, you can't you can't use it if you're building a uh, a Swift library for Linux, mm-hmm, for uh, especially sure. if it's Linux only, um, which I think very few of them are. But right, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a pretty good case to open source the migrator. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, Ted Kriminick is listening right now. I'm 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 sure they are. Maybe not every episode, but I'm sure some of this makes makes it way makes its way to them. Um, and then what was it? I was thinking of a third way where they could like surprise and delight, and that's uh, oh yeah, to basically have like a brand new thing that they've been developing, either closed source or without much public visibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where the LL build improvements for, say, cross-compilation might come in so that you right. could build for iOS from a Mac uh, using the Swift Package Manager. Mm-hmm. And there have there has been precedent for some of this in the past as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were changes that were being landed to uh, SourceKit, I believe, that were 
that was basically laying the foundation for it to be able to be used um, on in Swift for iPad, Swift Playgrounds for iPad. And I think that was the the ability to support linking against multiple SourceKit D frameworks from from a parent level one. Right. Right. Uh, oh, actually, no. The the best example of this I remember now is um, all of the work that was being done for the out-of-process uh, reflection mechanisms okay. that enabled the object graph debugger in uh, Xcode. Right. 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 So that work was actually being done in the open. And, you know, if if you were paying attention to the developments of the language, you were like, oh, here's a big focus into this really cool functionality into out-of-process reflection mechanisms that aren't exposed anywhere at the moment. And hey, we're leading up to WWDC 2016. Uh, and sure enough, the object debugger, uh, the object graph memory debugger launched at that point, making use of all of those primitives. So I'd be, uh, this is an exercise for listeners, is if you notice these kinds of developments happening in the Swift source, um, that aren't actually being leveraged anywhere, uh, give us a shout. Let us know because right. that's probably some indication that something is coming, uh, whether that's cross-compilation support in LDB or things similar to that. Is the underlying tool for the memory graph debugger the address sanitizer, ASAN, or is that something different? No, those okay. are basically unrelated okay. uh, as, as best I can tell. So ASAN is entirely built on top of LLVM. Okay where um, Swift C will pass special flags to okay. LLVM to basically generate um, a bunch of instrumentation into uh, the generated code. Mm -hmm. And then that instrumentation um, basically poisons memory addresses with other calls. And then if uh, one of those memory addresses is accessed, then we know that we have an ASAN violation. I see. Whereas... Uh, the object memory graph debugger uh, or object graph memory debugger, I, f I forget what the official name for this is. Mm -hmm. um, that is built uh, basically entirely on top of Swift, um, on top of the Swift compiler. I see. So when you're generating the binary, you're also adding basically type metadata information baked into the binary mm -hmm. so that other processes can kind of read those internal tables um, and then determine what the structure of objects mm -hmm. is. And from that information, they can then derive um, information about the live objects that are running in your app as well, and including uh, ref counts and, and the whole object graph, basically. Right, right. ownership between the objects. That's yeah. right. Um, so it's kind of exposing a little bit more uh, side information to make sense of information that's already there. Mm -hmm. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. ASAN and then TSAN, like the thread sanitizer stuff, all that work was, there, there are new features for both of those in Xcode last year, and that work was also done in the open, or at least hooking into, like, allowing this to work from Swift. Yeah, that's right. right. So TSAN and ASAN are LVM projects, um, and they've been around for, you know, since before Swift was around. Right. Um, but Swift gained uh, extra smarts and extra um, interaction or, or integration with those tools with, with Xcode 8. Right. Um, and there were advancements in ASAN and TSAN uh, 
in in those in those versions of LVM as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's not just work that was happening in one place. Um, it's it's really collaboration between teams at, at that point. Right. Yeah, I remember seeing a pull request from Anna Zaks on the Swift repos. And then I think she gave the talk on TSAN as well. That's right. Yeah. Great follow. Uh, Anna Zaks on on Twitter. Uh, We'll put her Twitter handle in the show notes. Um, Yeah. Cool. That was a fun aside. (laughs) Right. Uh, So let's talk about SPM, the Swift Package Manager. There were uh, four or five proposals, as well as tons of like fixes and improvements uh, to SPM uh, that landed with Swift uh, 3.1. So the first one that is mentioned here um, is editable packages. Um, so this allows users of SPM to uh, kind of begin editing on package SPM kind of moves source files around and allows you to modify a package that you have um, and avoid updating it uh, as you're you're developing anything else to add there yeah that's exactly right and I think a very practical um, use case for this is say there's a new Swift version that comes out like Xcode 83 uh, or Xcode 9 um, which should be soon and uh, you basically want to update your Swift PM project, but all of its dependencies uh, may or may not have been updated. So um, if you're lucky and you only have a a small handful of upstream dependency changes that are required, you can do this uh, Swift package edit command, do your quick fix, and then continue working on your project. And one of the nice things about how this is built is that it continues to uh, be a Git repository in in the edited version of the package. And so if you want to upstream a change uh, back, back to the project, it's extremely simple to then do that because you can just create a new branch, push it up to your fork, or if you have push access to, to, to the source of this package, um, you, you can just push it up straight there. And so it really improves the developer flow and the ergonomics of um, working with the churn of continued Swift uh, changes and and package changes as well. Right. And so currently, like, the flow for a tool like CocoaPods is much more convoluted for this, right? If you, I guess if you check your pods into uh, your uh, Git repository um, and you have you know, some app you're working on and you have all these pod dependencies, you can check those in. And then if you want, you can like make edits and check those in, but that's not really recommended or desirable. Um, the, the more appropriate way would be to like update that pod, um, update your pod file, run pod update, go yeah. through this whole process. Right. So this is like a much more streamlined way to, um, get around like kind of this this kind of breakage. Yeah, I think uh, the the Swift package manager team did a great job to um, to optimize for ergonomics here because having gone through that flow with CocoaPods, mm-hmm. it is suboptimal in many ways. Um, right. The first of which being if you do make uh, kind of out of band changes, you're checked in pods, then the next time you do pod update, it might be difficult for you to know which changes are coming in from the pod update versus the the, the patch that you made yourself, mm-hmm. right? So it might be slightly more difficult to, to reapply or you might override your patch by accident. Mm-hmm. And there are other techniques for this, right, where you can have 
Um, one of the things that I, I've done before with CocoaPods projects is to basically have .patch files in my project. I check those in, and then whenever I um, do a pod install, I'll have a post-install step that applies those patches. Interesting. Um, which is also suboptimal in so many ways because, hey, right. if you get a merge conflict, um, then uh, tough luck. Um mm-hmm. And then it's also suboptimal, even if you don't do that, if you're checking in your pods, because that um, adds quite a bit of heft um, to your Git project, mm-hmm. right? It creates a lot more of these Git files uh, to track. Um, so it bloats your repo. Mm-hmm. And it also, it, it isn't super easy to upstream those changes because CocoaPods will pull in your uh, dependencies, not as Git projects. It right. stores them as Git projects in CocoaPods cache, but it won't store them in your local pods directory. Mm-hmm. So any change that you make there generally isn't tracked by Git, um, and especially not in the context of that project's Git repo, just your project's Git's re- Git repo. So I feel like the Swift Package Manager really considered a lot of those um, friction points Right. from other other tools that allow you to do some level of this and, and really found a decent compromise. Right, so uh, so then the workflow here, like your packages directory will just contain the full Git checkouts for all of those packages, right? That's right. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so this actually brings us to, um, to another Swift Evolution proposal that was implemented and shipped with Swift PM and Swift 3.1, which is... Uh, Swift Package Manager version pinning. Yeah. Um, I think the the easiest way to explain this, um, again, is via the CocoaPods analogy. You know, you you install uh, your pods and you have your pod file dot lock, which specifies the version number. So, well, actually, there's a couple of different concepts here. So you have your pod file and you can specify version numbers in that pod file. And then you have this lock file that kind of manages, uh, that makes sure that everyone is on like these, these same versions. So, uh, with the version pinning and SPM, it's slightly different. You have the package manifest, uh, where you can specify a version number there. Let's say you just specify like major, major version two, then you can run this swift package pin command um, and say pin that package to like 2.2.3 or something. Um, and then from that point on, uh, running swift package update will will no longer update that package to 2.x releases. It will uh, keep you at that 2.2.3. Yeah, and, and uh, very specifically, it'll also, if you check in this... Um, this dot pins file, uh, so it's it's actually package dot pins right. the the name of the file. Uh, you can choose to check it into your source control, which means that any other users that pull this down will have this pinned version applied. And so the the interesting thing about the way or how this plays with with the main manifest file for me is um, it's that you can already pin. To a very to a specific exact version in the manifest file. So if you specify uh, in your manifest file, say I want version two point two point three, um, you don't need a pins file. And in fact, a, a pins file uh, will also like it's just one more place where you're duplicating information that you could have otherwise specified in the manifest file. 
that may contradict and conflict. And so it's two places to go and update if you want to unpin something. Um, so I'm not quite fully sold on the advantages of having a pins file versus pinning the version in the manifest file. I do like the uh, the simplicity of just having things in one place in the manifest file. Mm-hmm. The disadvantage, I think, to that is that if you have a lot of dependencies and you want to update most of them, other than maybe one or two or three, a small number um, that uh, are, are critical and or that you know have uh, a bug or an incompatibility in, in, in a subsequent version, um, then it can be a pain to set all of those versions manually. You might just want to um, pin a handful of these. So right. I, I, I can see some motivation for it. If it were up to me, I think it doesn't warrant the extra complexity personally. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can still specify just very specific versions just for a handful of your dependencies in the manifest file mm-hmm. and have all the other ones just use the major version or the major and minor, not specify the patch. Um, so I think this is a step too far, but I can see the arguments why why this eventually made it in. You know, I could see like a workflow where maybe uh, you you pull in some library and there's some bug introduced in like a minor version update or something, and you want to like pin it temporarily until there's a patch version that's released. Um, maybe that would you know, that way you're just kind of like modifying this package.pins file and you don't really have to touch your manifest at all. And you kind of just have this temporary way to work around it that's maybe a little easier, but... You can still set it uh, temporarily in your manifest file. That's true. Right? So yeah. you're you're editing yeah. a second file instead of the first file. It's not any more work. You know, the Swift package manager can already parse the manifest file. So it, it it's not like you would have needed to build a parser to be able to tell what version it's at now and to uh, say, like, modify uh, the contents of the manifest file to to pin it, for example, right? So the same commands, the same flow could have continued to work. That's me personally. Um, you know, I right. can see that there, there are good reasons to have this nonetheless. So if you create a manifest file and run uh, update on SPM, will it implicitly pin those uh, packages that have uh, specific versions for uh, major, minor, and patch? No. Okay. No. So the the pins file is only created uh, if you actually run Swift package pin. Okay. Interesting. Uh, That is my understanding of it. I have not used it myself. um, And, uh, you know, that's my interpreted reading of uh, the Swift Evolution proposal. Mm -hmm. Oh, so there is this automatic pinning uh, behavior that you can enable uh, which maybe that is something, you know, if you want to set your project up to just automatically pin from the start, maybe that could be a good use case for this, especially on like bigger teams. But they have some like future directions listed here where they may consider embedding additional information. Um, they say like a known tag uh, when using Git or something like this. So yeah, perhaps there's this is just kind of a foundation and they're going to build on top of this with more more interesting and more useful features. Yeah. Potentially. You know, looking through all the possible subcommands here, like Swift package pin, enable auto pin, disable auto pin. Um, you can have a Swift package update dash dash repin. Uh, this is really adding quite a bit of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not quite certain that it's, it's just worth that extra com- complexity given that you can do a lot of this 
manually, mind you, by uh, updating the versions in your manifest file. Mm -hmm. Right. But yeah, I think I think I've stated my piece with this. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, it's an opt-in feature. Um, so yeah, you know, you could still use SPM without ever having to worry about this pinning. And like you say, just, you know, use the, the manifest, um, and update that manually. And so maybe this is more of like, a maybe this is a good example of like progressive disclosure, right? Where only more advanced users who may need this specific behavior ever have to worry about version pinning. Let's hope so. Yeah. Uh, the last thing that I'd want is to like pull a project that I'm checking out for the first time and uh, to be, you know, to not be intimately familiar with package.pins. And so, and then trying to figure out, hey, why can't I update this? Uh, and maybe the the error messages or or the, um, the stateful informational messages are uh, verbose and um, explanatory enough for that not to matter. But the last thing that I'd want is to not be familiar with the concept of pinning because, hey, that's not something I've opted into in any of my projects and not understand right. how this new project is behaving in a different way than any other thing with Swift PM that I've ever used before because, hey, this is a new feature, right? Mm -hmm. So no one's used this before. Right. Um, and I can only imagine like a beginner running into the complexity of this being like, oh, well, why do I have two files? And it seems to be a little simpler, if less flexible, uh, with the way that, for example, Bundler uh, has mm. built this and CocoaPods and Carthage and et cetera. There's like an established convention for lock files. Right. Um, and right. I, I do appreciate that as part of the deliberation here, um, the, the authors of this proposal uh, addressed head on the um, naming uh, right. question right? right should right. we call this a lock thing because you know and the, and they they've said we've explicitly chosen to use pinning to refer to this feature because lock over lock files because the term lock is already overloaded enough between mm -hmm. POSIX file locks and locks and concurrent programming um, which totally makes sense but you're going against a convention here right um, and as much as the Swift community tends to uh, do what they consider best, even in the presence of conventions that go against that decision. So for example, C style for loops. I was about to say that. <laughs> right. Plus plus and minus minus. <laughs> exactly. The the increment and decrement uh, op operators. Um, I feel like I, there's just so much with this proposal that I have doubts about that it just adds up to, uh, for lack of a better word, cruft mm -hmm. or, uh, or uh, unnecessary complexity. Mm -hmm. And I don't buy the um, in incremental disclosure um, argument because you might run into the side effects of this or the effects of this without knowing that it's there. Right, that is true. Progressive disclosure. Right, right. All right. <laughs> Um, and th this, at a meta level, I'm happy we can uh, take an honest take on all of these things that, that Apple is doing, the, the Swift community in general. I think that we're biased in the sense that we're involved in the community to some extent and we want it to succeed. So we probably see things more of the time in a, in a positive, rosy light. For sure. Uh, but that we can still call things out if, if we think, um, you know, it was a compromise that was swung too far in the direction that, that we didn't like or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
access controls. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think we have a lot more to say about that. Yes, another day. Cool. So uh, next big thing here is uh, the tools version. Yeah. So um, we're already over half an hour in. So I think we should probably breeze through these last two, right? So there's uh, Swift Evolution 152, which is uh, the Swift PM tools version proposal. And then there's 151. Uh, so we have them in, in opposite order, but they really go together here. And that's the Swift package manager, Swift language compatibility version. And so these are two ways to specify in your manifest file um, the versions that uh, of the Swift tooling generally, whether it's the Swift version itself or the tooling in general, that you expect um, your end users to 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 use um, or to require to have to be able to use this. And so the tools version is more a minimum Swift tools version, and that I think is mostly used uh, to distinguish between the old Swift 3.x package manifest file format and the Swift 4 manifest file format. Because this is something that uh, we actually didn't mention, but this is another proposal that um, that was accepted and implemented, but for Swift 4, the package.swift uh, API will change once Swift 4 ships. Uh, so they've actually updated all of the APIs to conform to Swift 3's API guidelines. Right, right. So, so that means there's a breaking change between Swift 3 and Swift 4, but the um, the Swift package manager is providing a way to uh, basically opt in to that um, to that breaking change by, by exposing this tools version. So if you specify a tools version in your package.swift file uh, that states uh, Swift 3, then... Um, Swift PM will then parse the package format as if it was the old API. Uh, so they're preserving backwards compatibility here. And this is done with a um, comment at the top of your Swift package file. Uh, it's the Swift tools version um, command. So if you've ever used like SwiftLint and specified like SwiftLint disable, SwiftLint enable, or things like that, uh, they're basically um, semantic commands written as comments, very similar to how like DTD is defined for XML documents. Um, so this is a way to specify basically what minimum version of the Swift tools that you need. And then the the sister component to this is specifying a Swift language compatibility version, which unlike the Swift tools approach, you can specify more than one. So say your library uh, compiles for both Swift 3 and Swift 4 mode, you can specify those two Swift language versions in your uh, package.swift file. Um, so that's, I think, an, an overview of, of those two things. Yeah, and in a previous episode, we at least covered this a little bit, the language compatibility work that um, went into, I think some of it landed in the, the Swift 3.1 uh, release, but it's really going to be prominent in Swift 4 where uh, you will no longer have to do this migration up front uh, like what you had to do with Swift 2 to Swift 3. Um, so everyone will be able to migrate uh, on their own time uh, for the Swift 4 launch. And this just kind of builds that functionality into the package manager. Yeah, so it makes a whole lot of sense that all of these features were kind of designed and built and shipped maybe very close to the end of the development cycle for Swift 3.1 mm -hmm. because for this to be useful at all, um, if, when Swift 4 comes around, you need to have 
had the opportunity to use it with Swift 3 to say, like, this is a Swift 3 project. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's all I had uh, to bring up today. Do you have anything else? No, I think we're I think we're good. Great. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Uh, big thanks to Spec FM for hosting the show. Uh, Swift Unwrapped is a weekly show about um, the developments in the Swift language and community. Uh, if you like the show or if you have any feedback at all, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, so, Jesse, how can people reach us? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Jesse underscore Squires. And you can find me on Twitter at SimJP. Uh, and the show actually has a new Twitter handle. It's Swift underscore Unwrapped. So make sure to follow that for any updates. And once again, thanks to Perfectly Soft for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to check out the Perfect Assistant at perfect.org slash en slash assistant. See you next time. <laughs>